So, Dr. Suru, um, in your opinion, why is politics, policy, and tech a trilemma today? Like, why is it difficult to balance all of these three? Um, let's start with uh, a country like India, but I, I would imagine it's uh, similar for other places as well. Well, I mean, in India, we are seeing in many ways a very sharp uh, outline of some of the challenges of this uh, trilemma. That is, that tech has made significant inroads into the ways in which people function in society and in politics, the manner in which that has changed both society and politics is one aspect of the problem, but the responses individual citizens on the one hand and the government on the other to the way in which tech has become dominant have again shaped a new set of dilemmas. For example, in India, we now have uh, the government introducing the information technology, intermediary guidelines, and digital media ethics code rules. And these are rules which, um, which um, um, are intended very much to curb some of the, um, what the government sees as the excesses of the tech industry. Uh, and they've been pushed back against that both by, for example, internet freedom organizations that are essentially working on the side of, uh, of civil society as they see it, uh, speaking in terms of freedom of speech and expression and so on, and on the other hand, push back from the IT companies themselves, saying that they have certain global yardsticks they want to maintain and that what's being demanded of them is not in consonance, they argue, even with India's constitutional freedoms. So there's your trilemma very starkly illustrated. You know, if, if Twitter can shut down President Trump in um, America and Kangana run out in India, who else can it shut down? Should it be allowed to shut down? What, is, what are the yardsticks on the basis of which uh, it exercises its independent judgment? Or if it's operating in India, should it essentially um, obediently follow the Indian law? That is, if somebody it wants to shut down in India is deemed by the government of India not to have, commented, not to have committed any legally cognizable offense, then uh, would Twitter have to undo their shutdown on a government order? These are all questions to which answers are yet to be found, but they're amongst the kinds of questions that are coming up. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, a company like Twitter saying we have objective standards which we uphold globally uh, and we don't want to encourage hate speech or incitement or whatever, and that's why Mr. Trump and Ms. Runout are gone, uh, whereas there are fairly sort of self-righteously outraged people in India saying, you know, we've had the East India Company telling us what to do. We're now not going to let Twitter Inc., a California-based company, tell us what to do. We will decide India's laws that will prevail if you want to do business in India. And there are valid arguments, if you like, on both sides of this particular debate. And then at the same time, the government. Um, is the government an entirely neutral uh, player, uh, uh, free of any uh, political preconceptions of its own? Obviously not. Uh, yes, there are bureaucrats who are supposed to be politically colorless, but the government ultimately has a political preference of its own, and indefinitely uh, it is expected to take uh, a, a political stand as well. So who safeguards the interests of the ordinary citizen? 
in some ways, the trilemma that you've outlined gets even more complicated the more you start parsing the various questions involved. Absolutely, Dr. Thoreau. One question that I often uh, think about is, um, you know, when, you, when it comes to tech platforms, there are very few engineers building them out, but they affect all of us. And um, is there a way we can, you know, come up with a more democratic way in which uh, tech can be regulated? Do you see that as a possibility? Because I think that the understanding of how algorithms work is fairly restricted right now, but it in impacts everybody. So should everybody have an opinion? Should everybody weigh in? Or uh, should there be another kind of mechanism? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that particular subject? Yeah, well, look, frankly, you know, I'm a member of parliament. I chair the parliamentary committee on IT. And my committee is discussing these issues. Of course, we've had a uh, another hiatus because of COVID. We lost several months last year to COVID lockdowns, and we've had a difficulty in, in meetings since March. Since we're not allowed virtual meetings under our rules, we have to meet physically, and uh, because of the COVID situation, physical meetings have not been possible. In fact, the one meeting I tried to call had to be canceled for lack of a quorum, and I've now convened a meeting on this very issue uh, on the 18th of June, but it's anybody's guess whether I'll be able to get a quorum to travel to Delhi and arrive to discuss it. So we're looking at a situation where uh, the parliamentary committee is the democratic mechanism that permits very detailed discussion uh, with the uh, ministry as well as with the company. So we would, for example, and we have been, uh, as this issue has evolved, we, we would hear from Twitter, from Facebook, from WhatsApp, as well as from the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology. And where necessary, we can also hear from other ministries, uh, including state governments. So that's the, the, the democratic input. Uh, you're right to say every individual citizen of our country is affected, shouldn't their views be heard. As a practical proposition, uh, we expect the MPs to articulate the views of the ordinary citizens whom they represent. So people with opinions and views on this would normally come up uh, through their MPs and be heard. We do also occasionally uh, summon individual uh, citizens to testify. We've done so on a number of occasions. But the difficulty is that every selection one makes is invidious. So we've tended to go for people who have written to us and requested a hearing uh, and where we felt there was a basis for their request to be heard. For example, citizens who claim to have, have been uh, victims of a surveillance uh, snoop on their WhatsApp, or somebody who's filed a case in the Supreme Court on aspects of this. People like that, when they've written to us, we've given them a hearing in the committee. Otherwise, by and large, public opinion is supposed to be voiced by people's representatives, and namely the MPs. Uh, then, um, when, you, when you talk about policy making, laws and regulations are essentially written by the government, which in practice means a bureaucracy, um, uh, it's usually uh, on matters uh, involving policy questions approved either by the minister or by the entire minister, that is by the cabinet. Uh, but um, when issues become very complicated technically, as IT tends to be seen as being, uh, I don't know to what extent there's a widespread political awareness across the government on what's involved. So I suspect it's really done by the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology or MITEI as we, we slightly jokingly call it, the mighty ministry. And, and mighty, in turn, um, would probably speak to its own um, minister, and that may be it. In the case of the IT intermediary guidelines, of course, 
Uh, we also have the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting involved because part of these regulations deal with the regulation of digital news media, even though there is a lack of clarity on exactly which news media uh, these rules would apply to. OTT platforms like Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, Disney, Hotstar, etc., all of these are, are, are very popular in India, but um, they would now, as we understand it, come under the ambit of these rules, and they're still figuring out ways to cope and comply. So there's a lot of these things going on. At the end of the day, regulations don't need to be voted by Parliament. Laws do. Uh, and that, too, is another question. I mean, some are arguing that this really ought to be subject to a full parliamentary debate. At any rate, the committee is going to consider it very fully and make recommendations, which um, the ministry and the parliament are free to take up or disregard. Dr. Tharoor, I'd, I'd love to jump in with um, sure, Vedika. Maybe, maybe a slightly broader um, question and, and uh, maybe a slightly more personal one. You were one of the you know, first adopters of Twitter in India, you know, as, mm. as a politician, uh, you have been extremely tech savvy. Uh, and you've also been, uh, you know, obviously, you're, you're one of the most uh, articulate and, and famous observers of, of India and um, in India's development, India's story. Uh, one question um, I had for you was, as you as you take the larger lens, how do you look at what the new normal post-COVID is going to be? And how do you think about tech kind of as a motive, so to speak, of, of India's developments? It's, it's advancement. You know, we've, we've had this notion, especially that was very, very popular in the two, 2000s, India going, you know, from the elephant to the tiger to the cell phone. <laughs> Where do we go next? Right. Well, I mean, there's no question, I think, uh, everywhere in the world, and India is no exception, that the, um, the post-COVID uh, world is going to be far more reliant on tech than the pre-COVID world, because what happened was we suddenly had a, a deep uh, acceleration of resort to technology, where people who'd never been on a video conference in their lives were suddenly having to hold all their meetings on Zoom and, and its various um, uh, competitors, uh, where students... Uh, who may not necessarily have been allowed to watch TV at home, were suddenly doing classes online, etc. So, I mean, there's no question that we've all become uh, much more reliant on tech. Uh, work from home has become such a significant change in the way in which uh, normal professional practices uh, are, are being conducted, that all of this is going to really raise um, very serious implications in every sector of society. If you look at politics, there's no question that tech has contributed to the rise of the surveillance state. Uh, when we first, for example, um, uh, came up uh, to face the inadequacies of existing data systems to monitor and track the spread of the transmission of the COVID virus, immediately a whole bunch of people around the world developed dedicated apps and tools to track people's data, their travel history, their contact with other individuals who may or may not be infected, and at that point, everyone was only focused on COVID. No one realized, my God, what wonderful tools you've created for authoritarian governments to surveil all your contacts and, and, and increase their data gathering. Uh, we've seen, for example, uh, the rise of AI and the open collaboration between governments and big tech. Uh, we also know this concentration of AI power 
and data in the hands of very few governments and very few organizations. Uh, where is this going to go? I think that it's not at all clear how it's going to go. Um, tech, uh, when it comes to issues like, uh, like education, I think the jury is still out. Everything that I'm hearing, and unfortunately my kids are past the educational stage and my grandson is too young to be severely affected, but the fact is that, that uh, most of what I pick up from young parents and, 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 and people right up to, to college and university is that this hasn't been great, that people have found it severely limiting to have to learn only through virtual means and, and, and online uh, education, many people say, has been actually rather um, disappointing, underwhelming, if you like. I, I remember before COVID, there was so much talk about ed tech and venture capitalists. We're on a we're on a site called Network Capital. So venture capitalists were were, were were investing billions already in 2019, for example, in education technology companies. Um, they must have thought they'd absolutely, absolutely done the right thing when suddenly education, more and more education moved online. But today, um, uh, the feedback they're getting is actually rather negative and that very many students, I think, are, are saying that, um, that they don't want this. They want a campus experience. They want to interact with teachers face-to-face. Uh, -face. They want to meet friends and make friends and, 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 and enjoy an educational life that is not all about staring at a screen. And then, of course, the digital divide in a country like India, where we've seen some of the horrors of, of, of tech-based education. Um, I, I'll never forget, because it's seared into my, into my heart, practically, the terrible story of a young Dalit girl who was her class topper till class 10 in Kerala. And uh, she was not just Dalit, she was the daughter of a daily wage worker. Now, when COVID came, of course, daily wage workers lost their jobs. There was no work to be done. Everyone was locked down. The family had literally no income. They were eating in community kitchens to survive. Um, there was no question of her being able to go online. Um, when, when, when an outcry went up, uh, Kerala being a fairly left-centered state, the government said, okay, whatever is being offered online, we'll also put on a government television channel that everyone can watch. But um, it so happened that that poor girl her family's sole TV was broken down. Her father had no money to repair it. And this bright, talented class topper, seeing all her classmates racing ahead of her, committed suicide. And it's just a horrific story. One of the things I'm doing this very week, in fact, as classes are resuming in Kerala, is conducting a donation drive, which I'm matching, to buy smartphones uh, for kids in schools to be able to follow their classes online. Um, but, you know, there many of these kids, as parents will not be able to afford the data pack. And ultimately, how much can you keep on giving? And we're going to do what we can. I'm only doing it in, in my constituency. I'm sure others can do it elsewhere. But we can't afford to think about tech as if everyone has ubiquitous access to it, as everybody listening to Clubhouse does, because there are an awful lot of people who don't have it. Uh, so uh, the prospect of virtual classrooms becoming commonplace is not something we need to greet with complete, um, complete enthusiasm in my, in my view. Uh, and so it goes. I've only scratched the surface of the larger question. Um, uh, <laughs> will will, 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 will uh, tech, when you, when you think about it, uh, affect um, uh, other sectors? Very obviously, yes. Military is already going heavily tech. You may end up in future wars where no human beings are actually involved in killing each other. 
but uh, but uh, computer directed drone technology will be destroying uh, cities and 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 people without soldiers having to actually spill blood uh, that could happen economic uh, uh, transformations uh, with the countries that have more dominant uh, technological products particularly with ai uh, taking over entirely possible um, would there be manufacturing and services in other sectors recovering uh, from the COVID-induced setbacks and lockdowns? Who knows? Workplace management. Um, there's a massive increase in the adoption of remote working. And I read an article recently about how office buildings in New York are now basically going empty because uh, companies are pulling out those that were renting. They canceled their rents. They don't want to have this. But what does that do in terms of... Uh, uh, of people's happiness go cushioned at work, stress levels, um, how, do, how does it help when people are coping with tensions at home as well as tensions at the office and their daily work? Um, would some sort of permanent adoption of hybrid work schedules start happening? Um, some people will certainly say that a more flexible working schedule has made them more happy, more at peace, easier to juggle their family responsibilities, etc. Others are saying, of course, that they've actually become worse at both work and family because of the conflation of the two. So, you know, you're asking me a question about something which is still very much shaking itself out. It's like really trying to paint a picture of a moving train uh, or a moving plane or a moving drone, if you like, in today's terms. And so all I can offer are these preliminary observations while saying that I believe a lot of these questions will be playing themselves out in the next few years. Right, right. I, 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 I agree with you, but uh, one, one, one follow-up I had there was um, my sense from your, from your responses was that you are slightly pessimistic about the impact that technology will have on our lives. Um, and, and I wanted to challenge that a bit because we've also seen a lot, especially in India, and I completely agree with you about the inequity uh, in access to technology, but we've also seen um, a lot of the good that technology can do. Your own government um, had you know, previously championed the use of Aadhaar. We've seen the way in which that, you know, for, for all the faults, it has made access to public services, uh, distribution of public services much, much easier. Um, and, and as you look at, um, you know, what the government needs to do post-COVID, given that we are moving or going to move to a much more digital um, or digitally enabled world, how do, you, uh, how do you think about the ways in which the government or your own political party needs to engage with tech companies, not just international tech companies, but domestic technology companies, um, and and with the issues of giving access to tech tech infrastructure right. to the citizens of India. Sure, Vedika. Look, I, I'm engaging all the time, so I, mean, I certainly would encourage all political parties to engage with tech companies. Uh, but I'm not prescribing, uh, shall we say, their own uh, innovation, their own developments, and so on to them because that's their domain and not mine. What I'm concerned about is precisely public policy questions like access. I want to ensure that my constituents, including the poorest ones, don't feel left out, that we don't get lopsided patterns of development because some people are more equal than others in a tech-driven world, which unfortunately is still the case for the most part. Uh, I do want to see also that 
those who, for various reasons, I mean, I used to be, let me, let me open a parenthesis here, I to something like, um, when it comes to something like uh, women students uh, from traditional conservative families, for example, Muslim families, uh, tribal families, and so on, being able to access education without having to physically go to a classroom. Uh, so connect them uh, online and make it possible for them to earn a, a degree or a high school graduation or a college graduation. That was a big thing that I pushed very strongly when I was in the Ministry of Education. And, and I pushed very strongly for, for much more of this kind of open schooling and all of that stuff. So don't get me wrong. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not entirely skeptical. But I'm very conscious that while technology can help enhance opportunities for people like that, it can also put enormous strains on those whose access to those opportunities are less than others. I mean, a classic example is people who've got a fiber optic sort of uh, broadband connection at home and their ease of access to video versus um, the, the, the situation facing people who um, uh, may be struggling with a, a very, very modestly paid uh, uh, um, uh, mobile telephone data pack on their smartphone because that's all their family can afford. I mean, even something as simple as that, how do you level the playing field? You can't. And, and, and the question is, can we demand of tech companies that they gear their products not just to the elite, which can afford to pay for them and, and also use them, but also to the ordinary citizen? So I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking at all of this uh, in that spirit, but I'm not uh, uh, fundamentally skeptical. All I'm saying is that a certain amount of technological determinism has captured people's imaginations. Uh, they, they see this irresistible juggernaut of technology uh, moving forward and all of us leaping enthusiastically onto the bandwagon. All I'm saying is, yes, but still hold your horses because, uh, because uh, we, we will have people not getting to that bandwagon, not being able to climb on, not being able to stay on it. And we have to ensure in making public policy that we ensure that everyone has as much as possible a fair and even shake. At the same time, as a policymaker, for example, I would love to encourage more policies that give India an opportunity to compete with the best of the world at the cutting edge of some of the stuff. Why shouldn't India be doing... I mean, it's astonishing to see the number of Indian researchers in Silicon Valley uh, who are bigwigs and players in AI. Why can't some of, that, some of those Indian brains in India be doing similar cutting-edge work in AI in India? I don't know what the impediments are, but I would be very much in favor of encouraging that to happen. So I'm not saying reduce everything to the lowest common denominator. I'm saying take everything into account. Got it. Uh, thanks, Dr. Thurur. First of all, we'd like to, we have a network capital as a large uh, 100,000 plus global community. We would like to support your fundraiser. So I'm going to take the uh, link of that from your staff and uh, share it among our community. But you said something really interesting about education in TED Talks, the four E's of uh, education, where you talked about excellence, equity, and so forth. And I really think there's need to reimagine the way um, we look at education in the post-pandemic world. Uh, Vedika had a really interesting tweet recently where she said that Indian ed tech industry is basically becoming a test prep industry. And I think to yeah. large, that's true. So, Dr. Thiru, how might we use the four E's to reimagine education in the post-COVID world? How might you think about it? 
Look, again, the answer in India may not be the same as an answer in, in England or America or Canada, whatever. So let me just focus on India because that's, that's where I work and, and, and those are the policies I'm concerned about. I would like to enhance um, uh, access to, to, to technology in education, but I'm very conscious that the vast majority of India's students are functioning in schools which cannot even take 24-7 um, um, electricity for granted let alone anything else. I mean, I, I, I remember when we tried to encourage educational video conferencing um, in, in, in my time in the ministry, um, we got many, many complaints from state governments that they were not able to take advantage of it because they um, didn't have enough uh, reliable supplies of electricity. So we said, okay, we'll give you money to buy generators uh, so that you can generate electricity and log into these video conference classes coming to you from Delhi or whatever. And, of course, we did get them the generators, did give them the money, but they used their generators when VIPs came to visit their schools and didn't have enough to function when video conference classes need to, needed to be taken. Uh, it, it's at that kind of level. The last-mile connectivity in broadband is still pretty pathetic in large areas of our country, uh, particularly when you get to rural schools and so on. Uh, then there is the question also of interpretation of these lessons. Imagine you, you have a, a, a world-class or at least the best of, best of its kind in India class um, educational lecture coming to you techn technologically through um, either video conferencing from Delhi or you have it from, for example, people coming out of a, coming out of a, a sophisticated course or anything like that. Uh, and then what happens is that essentially people um, are, are are, are imbibing the same lecture, whether they're in a big city in, and, and, and have had a sophisticated English medium education, or whether they're in a small rural area and, and, and are struggling with English as a second or even a third language. Very often in these situations, you need teachers as, as a buffer who can interpret what those lectures are saying and explain them to the students. But are our teachers available in sufficient number and quality uh, to be able to do that? Far from certain that's true or that's true everywhere. So, uh, you know, forgive me for saying that ed tech is important um, and, 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 and it should not be, as Vedika rightly warns, just be reduced to test prep tech. But at the same time, it cannot be an all-in-all -all answer because it will just keep leaving too many people behind. And I, I do need to, to worry about all of this. In fact, even for something as simple as what's going on right now with many, many crucial examinations. Um, if you offer offline examinations, that is, people go into exam halls, you expose the students to the risk of COVID. You offer them online, and you again immediately disadvantage those who are living in poorer areas, areas with poor electricity, poor broadband connectivity, uh, who have to take the same exam in the same time frame uh, uh, with uh, those who have much faster broadband speeds and more assured electricity. So, you know, you're facing some real dilemmas uh, at the moment in the Indian context, which will require enlightened public policy that, frankly, I don't think has yet been made. Yes. In your first masterclass on network capital, you talked about um, the power of wonder and curiosity in learning. And I think if there's one thing that you should really do, uh, is to make sure that the school curriculum, and even when you know people go to college, the sense of wonder doesn't get lost. Most of jobs of tomorrow don't exist today. So I think test prep is one small aspect of the equation. 
there's need to do a lot more. That's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a country which is now living with the highest levels of unemployment ever recorded, ever since they kept started keeping figures on unemployment in, in India. That's the level of unemployment we have now. And you're looking at a situation where you have to ask yourself, well, does tech have an impact on employment? It's fascinating to see that um, what I'm getting from Western sources as to what's happening with layoffs, COVID-induced layoffs, if you can call them that, um, in in many Western economies, is that, uh, for example, marketing, sales, and operations staff are being let go in a number of companies. But software developers, testers, people with experience in AI or data science or machine learning, they're the ones who've got job security. They're the areas in which jobs are available. So even in the Western world, you'll find that, find that tech has already got winners and losers. And, yeah, and, 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 you know, you're certainly going to see a lot more of this uh, affecting a lot more people in, in, in countries like mine. Look, I, I'm in a situation where uh, Kerala, my, the states in which I you know, function mainly, uh, is much more advanced than many other parts uh, of India. Uh, and so we were getting to a stage where pretty much every student, even in government schools, was being made computer literate. And we were telling them that this is now basic. You better know how to use a computer just as your parents knew how to use a pen and paper and your grandparents knew how to use a slate and chalk. That's one of my sort of standard lines in explaining all of this to, 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 to dubious parents who've never seen a computer in their lives. But is that going to be enough? I mean, just that level of, of, of basic computer uh, literacy uh, may not be enough at all to get ahead. In, in, in the galloping new world of technology that we're facing up to. Uh, so there's all these, all these astonishing changes. And the other thing one should remember is the way in which so much is getting obsolete so quickly. You know, I remember when I came into Indian politics just a few years ago, a dozen years ago, um, uh, all of this is happening. I'd just written the book that Vedika alluded to, The Elephant, the Tiger, and the Cell Phone, talking about the transformation of India's economy. I was talking about tech and, and how, for example, the cell phone epitomized the way in which things had so dramatically changed since the India that I had left to go to graduate school in the U.S. Uh, from in 1975. And, and what a dramatic transformation, all the exciting potential. But at that time, when I'd come back to India, India was riding the crest of a boom in something uh, a, a, something that was being hailed as a sunrise industry of the new technology, and that's an industry called medical transcriptions. What was that? Well, an American doctor would uh, see his patients all day, dictate his notes into, into, into the computer at the end of the day, would be zinged over to India while he went to sleep. Uh, an Indian with some basic medical ex- experience and education would wake up, type up all his notes, transcribe them, in other words, zing them back to America, uh, the doctor would come in the next morning, refresh from his sleep, and have all his case notes typed up for him, ready to, to use. And it was much cheaper than having a secretary uh, hired on American wages uh, to take dictation and do this. Obviously, many, many fewer man-hours involved at much lower dollar rates, and it became a great idea, and medical transcription took off. And by about 2005, I think India had something like 85 to 90% of the global medical transcription market, Companies were being established that do nothing but this. Students were being dragooned into, into becoming professional medical transcribers. Um, it was considered a huge boom industry. It's gone kaput completely. Why? Because no one in that business anticipated the development of voice recognition software through AI 
that would make it totally unnecessary for that doctor to have to pay a transcriber in India to transcribe his notes. He would buy software one time and dictate his notes into his computer and see the text coming up in real time before his very eyes. End of the story. Medical transcription went bust. 95% of the companies in that business have either had to take on other businesses or just fold. Massive losses and unemployment resulting. Now, there's a, a classic example of how tech has just completely changed uh, within a span of a decade. Uh, what was considered a sunrise industry, how quickly it became a sunset industry. There's a study by the Oxford Martin School a few years ago that said that 30% of the jobs in the world in 2030 will be jobs that don't exist today. Right? So how do you prepare people for a job that doesn't exist? You just get them to, to somehow train them to think outside the box. But that's not what India is good at. As Erika says, you know, we're all about exam prep. <laughs> exam prep is based on last year's questions and the questions of the year before. Uh, they, they cannot anticipate entire subjects that don't exist today. So it, it, it's a fascinating, challenging world. Um, it's going to require a lot of very nimble policy making and very, very imaginative, out-of-the-box thinking. Uh, and I have real worries and doubts as to whether our political class and our bureaucratic class are up to the challenge of doing that kind of thinking and preparing our Indian students to take advantage of those opportunities um, when uh, this change is upon us. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Tharoor, Th just to um, f follow up on that point. Any 30 jobs. Yeah, go ahead, Vedika. Sorry, uh, Utkash, I, I might have interrupted you. But Dr. Saru, just to follow up on that point, when you talk about um, imaginative policy changes and politicians and bureaucrats not being up to the challenge in India. Well, I, there are honorable you, exceptions, and I think so, you're, you're, you're related to one of them. So there are people who think big, but there is an awful lot of people who don't. No, um, and, and I, I, you know... Completely agree with you, but I wanted to, you know, especially for people in the audience who might not be as familiar with policy making and the bureaucracy um, and, and the nuances of that, I wanted to, you to elaborate a bit more on that. What do you mean by um, the lack of imagination and what are some of the challenges that you see both as a member of parliament and, and as an ex-minister um, that, that make you say that we we perhaps don't have that talent or that state capacity for coming up with innovative policy? No, we are constantly playing catch up, I'm afraid. And I'm not, uh, this is not a, a political statement. I'm not just blaming the current government. I think all Indian governments uh, are perhaps equally culpable in this regard. Um, you know, one of the interesting things is uh, the way in which we latched on to engineering education, for example, as something that was going to be the answer to many of the demands of our young people. Um, and we started producing the world's second largest number of engineering graduates. We graduate about, um, if, I, if I have the number correct, about half a million uh, engineering graduates a year. Uh, and studies have established, and studies conducted in the real world by, by um, business organizations and others have established that 65, 66% of engineering graduates end up in jobs that don't require an engineering degree because either what they've studied is totally unrelated to the real world or uh, what they've studied has been overtaken in the real world but they're still anchored in old syllabi and old methods of teaching and, and um, 
are functioning in institutions which have never kept up with the dramatic changes that are taking place in the real world in which the, their education needs to be applied. Now, can we have policy making that, that, that changes that around? Of course you can. I can give you a very trivial example. When I was minister, we had decided that we would no longer grant permission for anyone to open a polytechnic anywhere in India unless they had a tie-up with a real-world industry within 30 kilometers of the place they were establishing their polytechnic. We said there's absolutely no point educating children something that's a vocational subject like uh, I mean, a vocational institution like a polytechnic um, out of, you know, decades-old textbooks being taught by people who haven't been inside a real workplace for ages. We really need to connect them to the real world. But that, that kind of policy change took a long time coming. And, and inevitably, there was resistance from those who had, for example, land and wanted to establish a polytechnic as a commercial proposition, uh, but didn't have an industry they could connect to, and so on and so forth. That's one kind of, 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 uh, of example. Another would, would relate to the entire culture of examinations. We are still a very heavily uh, exam-oriented culture, and if anything, uh, we have actually become even more immersed in that. When I was at university uh, now four and a half decades ago, um, universities were, colleges were much freer uh, to, to take people for a mixture of things. Their extracurricular talents, their sporting abilities, their speaking abilities, their theatrical abilities all counted not just their marks. But inevitably, perhaps partially because of the pressure uh, of the number of applicants and so on, all of this has been eliminated and now it comes down to your percentage in your school leaving examinations. That's it. Uh, courts have ruled that if somebody has let's say 95% in a particular subject, and that's not deemed enough to be interviewed for admission in a particular college, then nobody with, 90, with below 95 may be summoned for an interview unless everybody above that person is also interviewed. And as a result, you eliminate a lot of people who may have only 94 and a half, but who are brilliant debaters or whatever, uh, or would be great assets for the student magazine or whatever. Out. doesn't make any difference. And that's the kind of uh, uh, thing that India has been reduced to. Uh, we, we do not have enough room for flexibility in any sort of uh, actual practice in the education system. And with an examination culture, we often have no room for out-of-the-box thinking. It's, it's, it's something that, going right back to the school system, where we tend, unfortunately, to require our students um, to be totally uh, obedient to and respectful of our teachers and, and essentially repeat what the teacher tells them to do, and then as they grow older, they have to learn from their textbooks and from their teachers' lectures and regurgitate the same old stuff and often in the same old words, same old words into the examination paper. That style of education has gone from those societies that are keeping up with what's going on in the world. Uh, if you look at even the transformations in China's educational system in the last 10 years and contrast that with how little transformation there has been in the Indian educational system in the last 10 years, you know where we are lagging and slipping behind. That's the kind of thing I was alluding to, uh, Vedika. No, that, that, that's very helpful. Um, the, the other question that I had, kind of just following up um, on, on that point, is how do you, you alluded to this earlier, you know, the ways in which technology, especially during COVID, has changed the way all of us live our lives and do our work. What has that meant for um, 
politicians, bureaucrats, uh, and and parliament. Um, and and the reason I ask that is because I almost wonder if this mindset that you allude to also comes from this very old-fashioned way of working. Um, and I totally. was curious about your thoughts. <laughs> totally. Well, actually, it hasn't gone far enough in the world of politics and parliament, which is your question, <laughs> because I am the one of the more frustrated objectors to what's going on. Parliament has only been able to meet physically, which means it's had very, very, very little meeting time since COVID began because there has been total resistance from the powers that be to anything hybrid, where some members could log in from home and others could be physically there or anything, or even to have a parliament connected virtually. We are supposed to be an IT powerhouse, but we apparently are unable to connect uh, you know, 500 parliamentarians into one, into one system. It gets worse when you look at the parliamentary committees, which is where a lot of the detailed nitty-gritty of parliamentary work is done. The parliamentary committees have, uh, in theory, 31 members. In practice, you get between you know, 15 and 20 for a good meeting. and Never do you get all 31 showing up um, uh, at a meeting. So your quorum, on the other hand, is one-third of the membership, so that's 11 members. Now, imagine if you have various states with various different lockdown restrictions. Some states would allow you to travel, but when you come back, you've got to go into quarantine, so you won't travel. Some states won't let you come in without going through quarantine uh, at the receiving state and so on. So what happens at the end of the day is that MPs say we'd much rather just log into a parliamentary committee meeting virtually. Again, the technology is available. It exists. The rules don't permit it. So, uh, other parliamentary committee chairman and I have been appealing repeatedly to the Lok Sabha speaker and the chairman of the Rajya Sabha, who is the vice president of India, but they will not budge. They say, no, the rules do not permit anything but physical meetings. So when we have this kind of approach in India where parliament is not able to do its work of pursuing democratic accountability in a system like ours, because you are not able uh, to meet physically or you can't assemble a quorum to meet physically because uh, people are not able to come during COVID, uh, COVID time and with COVID restrictions. What you do? I mean, you basically throw your head um, in your hands and say, my gosh, you know, how can this be happening in the third decade of the 21st century? So my frustrations are, are, are typical uh, of, of the larger question you asked. Can technology help with politics and politicians and, and parliamentarians? Of course it can. Um, I would love a situation where you could meet your parliamentary committee from home, uh, where you could meet uh, as a parliament, irrespective of what's going on uh, in terms of COVID lockdowns or any other kind of lockdowns, where you could actually even perhaps conduct election campaigns and voting technologically. Though I know there's a lot of mistrust of technology in that last example, and probably I would be a, 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 in a very small minority of MPs who's willing to risk my own future uh, with people voting with the push of a button uh, at home or in designated centers. But anyway, I, I, I'm quite willing to see technology applied to all those areas. But there's tremendous resistance in the system. And none of these things that I've just mentioned have actually happened. Great. Thank you, Dr. Tharoor. Um, uh, we can't end this particular dialogue uh, without discussing China and the global world order. So uh, what I ask are you seeing the emergence of more cooperation among nations? And if we look at China and its emerging uh, influence on India and the rest of the world, 
are there some broader lessons that India should uh, consider as we prepare for, you know, a post-pandemic new normal world? Well, China certainly mastered the pandemic and, and, and the economic distance between China and, and everyone else has increased dramatically uh, thanks to COVID. There's no question about that. The, in relative terms, just look at all the numbers from 2019-20 and look at all the numbers for today. And China has just put distance between itself uh, and everyone else. When other economies declined last year, China has galloped forward. Uh, China has widened its lead over a contender like India uh, by far. And, of course, it has uh, also a diplomatic marriage of convenience with Russia, uh, in which it's China is the senior partner now, not like in the past. And um, its, its Belt and Road Initiative has managed to win uh, not just partners and, and so on, but at least win the silence of others uh, who feel they can't afford to be completely on the wrong side of China. So you're looking at um, a China that has transformed itself quite dramatically. Um, as far as international cooperation that you asked about is concerned, we dodged a bullet when America voted Trump out because Trump, as you know, had withdrawn from the World Health Organization, withdrawn from UNESCO, was denouncing China from every pulpit and, and was talking about really uh, potentially triggering a breakup of international institutions and organizations. Now that President Biden has undone all of that and, and, and the U.S. is talking to its rivals and critics um, we, we perhaps can still hope for some international cooperation. But there are, there are profound misgivings. And now the increasing conviction of people that, um, that the uh, COVID virus itself um, emerged from a lab in Wuhan rather than uh, from a bat or a pangolin or whatever else um, suggests that um, the divisions between China and the rest of the world will not just be economic, they'll be levels of mistrust and doubt and challenge, which will have geopolitical implications as well. Um, so, so it's a very big question that requires a much longer answer than we have time for. But I would say that China uh, is now the most significant factor in every major country's foreign policy calculations over the next few years. Uh, and India, obviously, uh, as a next door neighbor of China, is not at all exempt from, from that. So that's, that's a very, very important issue uh, for us. I mean, um, at the same time, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking in terms of, um, uh, of China uh, as a military threat so much that we've had a taste of that uh, in Galwan just exactly a year ago, a year ago today uh, or tomorrow. But also, let me say that the, um, the um, uh, interesting thing is that, for example, COVID-19 killed more Americans then died in all the wars that have taken place since 1945, including the Vietnam and Korean Wars. So uh, from America's point of view, you could argue that uh, the military threats facing Americans pale by comparison with the threat posed by a pandemic like COVID. So um, uh, I, I see international cooperation multiplying something like the effort that Mr. Biden has actively supported uh, to... Um, to promote access to vaccines for poor countries, uh, help strengthen the capacity of the healthcare systems, so that can really happen if you can really have a have a international cooperation on the public health front. You will actually and and do it by the way, not just out of altruism, but because if if the COVID virus is running free in Africa or Asia, it will eventually come to America and the UK and Europe and so on. So there's no question that um, it is in everyone's interest to see the world as one unit 
when it comes to dealing with public health, that could be the crucible of a level of international cooperation that might just augur well for international geopolitics also. But uh, I'm not uh, urging anyone to hold their breath for that to happen. It's, it's going to be an uphill struggle, and the divisions uh, in global geopolitics, to my mind, are still far more stark and starkly apparent than the uh, levels of cooperation. Well, thank you, Dr. Tharoor. And maybe like towards the end, if you find time, you can mention uh, some lessons for, that India can draw. But I think it's time for audience questions. So shall we pull up? Uh, you know, you, I've seen many raised hands and folks who want to ask questions. Uh, let's, uh, let's have them up on stage. Uh, okay, so we'll yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Tharoor. I really enjoyed this discussion and I can't agree more about the need for foresight and understanding China. I have a question about the IT rules and the way forward for them, uh, because given that the structure of the IT rules currently, it would mean that there would be increased government regulation and this would also uh, be something that most users and platforms will not be comfortable with. So what do you think would be the way forward? You know, I'm sorry on this one. I've got to be a little careful because as chairman of a committee that's still considering this issue, uh, I can't really um, take a, a policy stand without uh, some of my uh, ruling party members demanding my head and demanding my removal because I've discussed matters that the committee is yet to take a position on. So I was very careful in answering Utkash's initial question to just uh, confine myself to generalities on the broad path forward. The committee still has to discuss uh, uh, specifics and to come up with particular uh, policy responses, which we will then have to adopt in a report. Once that's out, then each of us is individually much freer to speak and speak for ourselves. I broadly say that there are uh, uh, large questions involved here, which, uh, which many of us will want to consider. Uh, there are questions that um, uh, relate to the obligations on companies. Um, on the question of, uh, of grievance redressal grievances from ordinary citizens, um, the questions of, um, of data policy, data retention. You know, we just still don't have a data protection law in India, but we're expecting uh, that the select committee that was working on it will come up with a report shortly, and maybe even in the monsoon session of Parliament, we might get a chance to adopt that, but that will then have implications for this. Uh, there are questions of, of, of the safety of end-to-end -end encryption, for example, with the government telling uh, companies that encrypt their messaging, that they will have to keep some sort of key so that if a message is found to be violative of law, that the government, by law, can ask uh, who originated that message in India, uh, who was the first sender of that particular message in India, etc. So you've got all of these, uh, all of these uh, issues that need to be sorted out, and I I have to admit that I don't believe there will be unanimity in the committee, uh, which is, after all, a committee made up of politically elected MPs, and there's bound to be political preferences being reflected in some of the stands that MPs will take. We may end up coming up with a report that will say, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Uh, but once the report is done, uh, I'm very happy to come back for another chat and give you my own views. But right now, I have to maintain the discretion required of a committee chair in our parliamentary system. Awesome. Yeah, thank uh, you. There's a question that has come on the website. Uh, Dr. Tharoor, who is a careerist politician? And do you think more people will be um, taking up careers in politics, given the responses in their respective countries by their respective governments? 
No, a political career is one thing, but a political careerism is another. A careerist is somebody who is interested in politics only as a means of his or her self-advancement, whether it's making more money, getting more position, getting more power, getting more uh, benefits for themselves. That's what a careerist is. And a careerist is not encumbered by considerations of policy, ideology, principle. They'll take one stand today, but if their careerism prompts them to switch parties tomorrow, they'll take the opposite stand. I mean, I've had people making the most eloquent speeches in defense of secularism and then joining the BJP and making the opposite speeches uh, shortly thereafter. And these are, uh, uh, the, the, these are the elements that go into careerism as a, as a political um, uh, practice. Um, I believe that politics is really one of those professions where uh, values, ideas, and ideals matter terribly. Uh, I may not agree with your ideals, but as long as you have those ideals and you profess them in your politics, I respect you as being in politics to pursue your vision of a just society, a good society, a perfect society, just as I have my vision of the kind of society. And so I would, for example, uh, believe that my vision of, of what's good for India is of an inclusive society, an inclusive India where people of every uh, caste, creed, religion, language, color, region, all have equal stakes, equal rights, and feel an equal ownership of Indian democracy. Whereas others, in their own ways and for their own logic, see an India which should be principally a Hindu Rashtra, should be a state <coughs> of foreign by the Hindu majority, <coughs> and don't accept my premise that the, the state should be even-handed in dealing with all, uh, all its citizens equally. Well, I think the two sets of ideas are so completely incompatible with each other that it boggles my mind to imagine that somebody who worked in a party that advocated one of those ideas found it possible to switch to the party that, that advocated the other set of ideas and could hold them both without any sort of <laughs> dissonance in their own head. But there are people who do that, and they're the ones I call the careerists, because all they care about is, will I get a ministership out of this, or a ticket out of this, or a, an opportunity to, to get position, or power, or money, or whatever else it may be. And that's why, unfortunately, we have seen a number of politicians um, moving away from professions of principle and ideology um, into, into what's, uh, what's, what's in it for them rather than what's in it for the country. Uh, we had Marilyn who had a question as well. Uh, good evening, sir. Uh, sir, my question is, uh, ever since United States initiated a trade war, uh, with China, they were able to reduce its dependency on China in a very massive uh, way. Do you think India is in a position to reduce or initiate a trade war with China? Or when do you think India will be in a position to initiate a trade war with China? Because right now we are suffering a huge trade imbalance. So I would like to know your views on that. Yeah, I mean, there are others who are greater experts on this, but I can tell you from what I have seen, that I don't really see much chance of India being able to um, reduce its uh, trade dependence on China, not just because China was the only major economy that grew significantly in 2020 and, and therefore is even more uh, a source of but, but because it's an extremely essential uh, source of supplies to us as a country in terms of everything from goods that are cheaper than we can make themselves ourselves uh, to uh, the the elements that go into making goods. 
machines to make products, um, ingredients for pharmaceuticals, chemical ingredients, all of these things that come from China um, make us more dependent on them uh, rather than less. And so I'm um, disinclined to suggest or consult or recommend anything like a trade war. And the other thing we have to understand is however big China is for us in India as an economic partner, and it is in terms of goods our biggest economic partner, the U.S. only becomes number one when you add goods and services together. But however big China is for us, we are not big for China. We account for barely 2% of China's exports. So even if we declare a trade war and shut down all exports from China, that's just 2%. They're growing by 8 So how does 2% bother them? Uh, that's why I don't think this talk of a trade war with China actually makes any sense at all. We'll end up hurting ourselves more than gaining from it. Uh, I'm not terribly fond of the Chinese, and I'm very conscious that we're talking on the, on the 14th of June, which is actually the very day and night on which 20 of our soldiers lost their lives in Chinese hands in Galwan a year ago, June 14, 15. So I'm very conscious of the pain that that bears, and I would love to be able to cut my um, dependence on a country that did that to my fellow citizens. But at the same time, I don't see how realistically we can do that. And so I think I have to accept that um, in, 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 in not overreacting, as some would see it, our government probably felt it had no choice. Great. Thank you, Dr. Tharoor. Uh, Arpita? Yeah. Um, hi, Dr. Tharoor. It was a very insightful hi. session. Uh, but my question is, I did understand that uh, there is... Uh, the problem of access to tech when it comes to the digital divide. A lot of students have to face the brunt of this entire shift to internet and online examinations and online classes. However, at the same time, the parliament not being allowed their democratic duties, like you said, uh, you know, not being able to take any action, course of action with regards to this entire problem of digital divide. What do you think is the way forward right now for the current government and for everybody who's in power to make a change with regards to the same. Actually, on the digital divide, the government doesn't need the parliament to approve it because there's nothing, there's no law that needs to be passed. It's just implementation. It's the government can give um, guidance to, to universities and schools and policies. It can redouble its efforts to, to, to introduce uh, uh, broadband connectivity with, with significant speed. It can release more spectrum for the purpose so that greater speeds are possible and available. Uh, it can improve uh, more reliable electricity distribution so that we don't have power cuts everywhere all the time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's about executive actions that the government um, can do with, with greater efficiency, reliability, et cetera, and resources where necessary. Um, and then you can, you can deal with the digital divide. And of course, if, for example, some enlightened state governments are able to provide every single student in their high school system, as I think Tamil Nadu does, with either a laptop or a tablet, then, of course, uh, that's great. And then, of course, they'll also need to be able to, to have a data pack to access uh, data. But, I mean, those are ways in which governments can actually help overcome the digital divide right there and then. Uh, you don't, in practice, need uh, to do this through, um, through parliament or through parliamentary laws. And no one is going to say we, we like the digital divide. Everyone wants to see it overcome. So, so um, government can do this as a matter of policy. Great. We've got to begin to wrap up. Akash, last question, um, and then Vedika and I will close the session. Thank you, Utkarsh. Uh, thank you, Dr. Tharo. This has been great. Uh, my question to is, 
a whole generation is looking up to in, in india is looking up at the new decade uh, with access to a plethora of new tools like the one we are on right now at the same yeah. time we also have uh, news about say uh, you know somebody's content being asked to be removed uh, the government makes a request how do we put these two together and what can the, what do you think the political class can do to come together and provide a ray of hope to this new generation who is seeking or expecting much more from the political class look i guess i, I wish i could tell you the political class was united on this it's not i come down very firmly on the side of greater freedom of speech greater freedom of expression greater opportunities for individuals to express themselves my my yardstick is very clear until they actually incite violence or hatred uh, or, or anything against the law from pedophilia to uh, to 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 communal uh, rioting as long as they don't do that they should be free to say what they like criticize who they like abuse satirize uh, do whatever they want uh, in the space out there frankly there's so much out there that in any case um uh you really have to take an enormous amount of trouble to be offended because uh, there are millions of things out there that could potentially offend you or someone else so just learn to take it in stride and ignore it water off the duck's back is my attitude but i can assure you that i am not um, at all confident that the majority of parliamentarians in my parliament would share that attitude very many i mean i've i've sat in the committee and witnessed um, mp's uh, sort of frothing with indignation about the decision by twitter to cancel president trump's uh, account uh, saying how dare they who who gives them the right to do that will they do it to mr modi tomorrow etc etc so there are different attitudes in the political class and you it's difficult in any democracy to ask for unanimity of opinion on anything i'd like to think that we would have a unanimity on ground rules that really emerge from the liberal constitutionalism embedded in the founding of our republic but even that's up for grabs and not everyone shares in fact if you I have read my recent book The Battle of Belonging uh those of you in England and the and the UK will only see it later this year under the title The Struggle for India so I've actually argued about this entire thing or whether liberal constitutionalism is the core underpinning of Indian nationalism or whether that nationalism is being rewritten reinvented um by the 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 uh, those who are now in power in India today and I certainly see a lot of signs of that kind of reinvention in ways that to my mind are at odds with what i thought our constitution was all about so all i can say is uh, don't expect unity from the political class but hope that there will always be political voices speaking out for your side of every issue uh, and and your 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 next door neighbor may have a different side of the issue and that person also deserves having a political representative speaking out for that person's side of the issue that's what democracy democratic constitution should be all about at the end of the day whoever wins the votes gets to implement their vision and that's really the best we can hope for uh, as we navigate our way through these rather perilous shoals and rocks that we've talked about for the last hour great uh, vedika um i i actually had um, a couple of questions to wrap up on dr tharur one was from someone in the audience who uh, is no longer there but i thought it was a really interesting question um and 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 kind of very topical uh, you know he he mentioned that since you were talking about um uh, democratizing tech democratizing finance um you know wanted to bring up the issue of blockchain um and and decentralization which is um, mm. you know a, a very big um 
subject of interest within the tech community in India in particular. And, and you know, I, I follow startup news uh, quite closely. And one of the more interesting things we've seen is a lot of um, Indian uh, you know, tech entrepreneurs kind of working on on things like definance, um, cryptocurrencies, not in urban centers, but you know, in in coming up in places you really wouldn't expect. So it's a it's a really interesting trend to keep uh, an eye on. Um, and and he wanted to ask you, this is Rahul. He wanted to ask you, you know, why is it that the Congress doesn't doesn't talk about uh, stuff like this? Why is it that the Congress perhaps doesn't? engage with some of these cutting edge um, themes um, in in technology and I, I, I was curious about that well this um, congressman uh, does uh, I can assure you <laughs> ask him to google uh, my article in the Indian Express from just last week about this very issue of blockchain and cryptocurrency and one of my observations is the problem in India is we tend to ban what we don't understand uh, and, and it's high time we actually took the trouble to understand these things and see see whether we can have enlightened policy making rather than a reflexive uh, regulatory approach that says, no, 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 we won't allow this, which is what had happened. The Reserve Bank had actually disallowed a cryptocurrency in India. Now the Supreme Court has reopened the issue because of precisely the awareness of the, the advantages of blockchain. So uh, some people are saying blockchain, yes, cryptocurrency, no, but I'm not sure how many people understand how all these things add up. So uh, I, as far as the Congress Party is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, uh, these are issues we do think about, we have thought about, and I've even written about. And I'd like to say that I believe that people uh, in the Congress party are very open um, in terms of policymaking and regulation. Cynics will say, well, it's easy for you to be open because you're in opposition and you have no responsibility for dealing with the consequences of any of these policies you advocate, perhaps. But at the same time, since we still cherish the belief that we'll be back in power one day, we don't really want to advocate policies they will bite us in the leg when we come to power. So we certainly want policies, that, we want to advocate policies that, that are for the good of the entire nation, whoever is in power. And that's why I feel that we can't afford to be left behind as blockchain moves on uh, at this part of the 21st century. Um, thanks, Dr. Tharoor. I, I also know um, you have a meeting, so we'll, we'll wrap up. Wanted to end on a note, uh, really referring back to your book, um, uh, the elephant tiger and the cell phone. You have been an observer of India for such a long time. I wanted to ask you when you when you look at India now from from the lens of technology. Um, you know what 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 is the larger picture that you see? How much has changed in your own lifetime? Um, and and wanted to end on a bit of a more optimistic note, like you know. It would be great to get your takeaway on on just the changes you've seen, um, and you know how how things have changed in India when it comes to technology. Just in your life, hugely, hugely, and unrecognizably. And I'd be unashamedly willing to recommend your husband's book, Midnight's Machines, by Arun Mohan Sukumar, which actually talks about the challenges facing technological policy making since independence and how much things have changed. I grew up in an India where uh, literally in, in, in a city like Mumbai, there was no television. Where um, Mumbai and Calcutta, where I went to high school, where there was only TV available in Delhi, that to one single black and white channel that mainly showed agricultural programs. And the only entertainment that offered the middle class was Chitrahar or extracts of Hindi movie songs. <laughs> that was about it. Really, um, there was no television. There was um, the perception that 
Anything involving electronics was a luxury that a poor country couldn't afford. Uh, even color TV only came in the 1980s when it was around uh, in our neighboring countries for a couple of decades already. Um, there was obviously no Nintendo, no PlayStation, no personal computers, no mobile phones, no handhelds, nothing. Uh, and the embrace of technology that came post Rajiv Gandhi, and I will give him credit for that, um, that showed such astonishing changes that I did chronicle in The Elephant, the Tiger, and the Cell Phone because, you know, I left an in India where for a then population of 600 million people, there were only 2 million telephones in the entire country where there were eight-year-long waiting lists for people to get a phone. And when you got a phone, you often didn't get a connection. You got the connection, you often got a wrong number when you dialed one. It was just absolutely not a priority for the government uh, to even have communications technology function effectively. And you fast forward to day when India was selling by 2005 or six more mobile telephones than any other country in the world and growing faster than any market in the world. That was an astonishing emblem of the, of the transformation caused by technology. Similarly, Y2K and the software revolution in India, the fact that suddenly we all became computer programmers saving the world from the imminent collapse of the entire global computing system when, when the clock struck 2000. Uh, you remember that little drama. Uh, some say it was a conspiracy dreamt up by some smart Indian to sell Indian software. But we, we started writing um, code to prevent computers crashing and established um, a computer software and, and programming and code writing uh, a reputation that has made India uh, uh, a major force in that side of technology. Today, of course, some of that is considered technological coolie labor, to put it cruelly, but it's something that we've done better, more extensively, and longer than anyone else. Uh, so the way in which the India of, of fakirs lying on beds of nails and snake charmers, uh, you know, uncoiling snakes from their basket, gave way in, in, in the international global imagination to an India of computer geeks and software wizards, uh, is itself uh, proof of the dramatic ways in which technology has changed what being Indian has been perceived to be all about around the world. And, and I think we should build on that. I think, you know, we are in danger right now being left behind and some of the cutting edge changes we talked about, particularly AI, machine learning, and so on, where uh, India has not been perceived to have kept up with the kind of stuff that even Indians in places like Silicon Valley are doing uh, to, to change the world. And certainly countries like China have gone way ahead of us uh, in, in terms of the, the new cutting-edge technologies of, of the third decade of the 21st century. So we have a long way to go, but the changes have been transformative, uh, and, and we need to uh, get back that spirit of adventure we had in the 1990s to embrace all these possibilities and stay out in front. I genuinely believe we have the brain power to do it. Perhaps what we need is enlightened policymaking that will free up more Indian innovation uh, educational policy making that will encourage more out-of-the-box thinking, entrepreneurial and tax systems that will encourage more people starting risky ventures in high tech. And we may well get out there while at the same time overcoming the digital divide that we can't afford to overlook. So that's my quick summary of where <laughs> I think we should go. I really yeah. do need to wrap up now, but it's been a wonderful conversation for both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you.
It's uh, truly special for us. You've covered a wide range of subjects, and I think you've given us a lot to think about, from lightning calls uh, from your generation to becoming an AI mini superpower. Um, this conversation has uh, given us lots to reflect on. Thank you for your time. Thank you all uh, for joining in, in such large numbers. This will be available as a podcast on all platforms within an hour or two. So we'll, we'll share the link. For more interesting programs, do check out networkcapital.tv. Thank you again, Dr. Tharoor. See you, Vedika. See you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.